Okay, Daniel. Let's remind ourselves where we are in the book of Daniel. Uh, so far, we've covered Daniel chapter 1 to 6. We're going verse by verse through the entire book of Daniel. And by the way, one of the reasons we like to do this as a church going verse by verse is because it permits the Word of God to dictate what we study as a church. Oftentimes, if a, you get to a church where they're not going verse by verse, it's easy to skip over some of the harder passages. You know, there's controversial passages. As a pastor, I just don't want to touch on that. Well, when you go verse by verse through books of the Bible, you've got to cover everything. You can't avoid the more difficult to preach passages. And so we always love going verse by verse through books of the Bible here at Park. Daniel chapter 1 to 6, what have we seen so far? This has been the historical narrative of the prophet Daniel's life. Remember the story. He was living in Jerusalem as a teenager when Babylon, the, the great empire of Babylon, came on the scene and essentially attacked Jerusalem and took exiles out of Jerusalem to the capital in Babylon. And Daniel was one of those exiles that was taken captive and removed from his homeland in Jerusalem and then was living as an exile in, in Babylon. And we've watched his story, Daniel 1-6, to is this story of all the ways that Daniel was used mightily by God living as an exile in Babylon. And we've had a lot of touch points with Daniel's story, right? Because what we tried to say is just like Daniel wasn't home yet, he wasn't in Jerusalem where he wanted to be. He was living amidst a culture of people that weren't worshiping the same God as him, and yet he was trying to be faithful. We've drawn a lot of counter, like similar points to our lives as well, living in a culture that isn't worshiping Jesus everywhere we go, but how do we draw courage from the saints who have gone before us? That's Daniel 1-6. to Now, today we get into kind of the new section of Daniel. Chapters 1 to 6 were the history of Daniel's life. Where we left off last week, Daniel's 80 plus years old, in his mid-80s. And if you remember, he got thrown in the lion's den for continuing to worship Jesus. Okay? So this is a man who as a teenager was worshiping the God of the Bible, sustained a lifetime of faithful, biblical, prayer-filled, disciplined life all the way to his 80s, one of the greatest tests coming in that season of life where many of us might say it's time to calm down. Daniel's getting thrown into the lion's den. Daniel, now, starting in Daniel chapter 7, we get to a new section that will carry with us through the rest of our study in Daniel. And here we get into what is called the apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature. Now, for those of you who kind of have a sense of what this is, apocalyptic literature is very symbolic. Tons of symbols and metaphors being used by a prophet to describe events that would happen in their future. This is some of the, the language in the Bible where you start hearing about beasts rising up out of the sea and crowns with ten horns and things like that that are all intended to be very metaphorical, metaphor, metaphorical, for, for speaking about a reality that would happen in the future, yet writing about it in almost prophetic code type language. And so we're going to have to put our... our our real Bible interpreter's hat on as we dig into some very metaphorical language. Secondly, uh, Daniel 1 to 6, where we left off, the whole book of Daniel 1 to 6 has been very chronological so far, right? We've gone through Daniel's life from a teenager to 80 years old. Now, Daniel 1, or Daniel chapter 7, verse 1 reads, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. We're now backtracking in time. So Daniel 1 to 6 left us. He's 80 years old. Now chapter 7 starts off back towards the beginning, earlier on in Daniel's career when Belshazzar was the king. All right? So timeline gets a little goofy here. It's not intended to be more chron chronological order. We're backing up and finding out more of the dreams Daniel had when he was a younger man. 
context helps understand what we're talking about. Now, in our chapter today, Daniel has a dream. He's got this dream. If you've been with us in our study of Daniel, this is not the first dream we're going to, we've encountered. In two separate occasions, other people had dreams. Nebuchadnezzar had these very important dreams that were symbolic of what was going to happen in the future. Daniel now is the one having the dream. One of uh, the Old Testament scholars I was reading this week as I was preparing for this, he was saying that Daniel chapter 7 is quite possibly the most important Old Testament chapter in the entire Bible. E.W. Heaton wrote that. And the reason for that is that many, many extra-biblical writings, so like from rabbis in the Old Testament days, those, those, those letters and writings that aren't biblical, but they're just, we still have them around today. The number one chapter that's referenced by Jewish rabbis from the Old Testament time period is Daniel chapter 7. Like beyond everything. Daniel 7 is always covered by Old Old Testament time literature. Why? Because of what Daniel 7 was trying to do. The purpose of this chapter was to very clearly mark when the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would come. That was its purpose. And the rabbis of the Old Testament days would go over this and they'd debate, okay, what are these kingdoms? Who, what's the date? Who are the three kings that he talks about here? And they'd debate and they'd write these letters back and forth because that was the intention of what this was. In other words, Daniel chapter 7 was written to the Jewish people in the Old Testament living in exile, right, in Babylon. And it was written down so that when the Messiah came, the Savior that God would send to reset the world, they wouldn't miss it. So all the details that we would know to know exactly who the Messiah is and when he comes are all written in here in quite metaphorical language. And we have to be good students of the world, word to understand this. Now, here's my claim for the passage today. Jesus Christ is the Messiah who fulfills Daniel chapter 7. That's it. As this was written to Old Testament saints living in Babylon. We're living 2,000 years after the one who fulfilled this chapter came. But it still is important for us because now we have all the evidence and reason to have conviction and strength in our faith that Jesus Christ is the Messiah who came and fulfilled this passage. Now, I want to give one more bit of warning before we dig any further into really breaking this passage apart. I think there's two types of people in this room whenever we begin to get into prophetic literature, okay, and studying the prophecies of the Bible. On the one hand, you have some people that love prophecies and stay up late at night trying to map out who and what and what country and when and where, and you've printed off all the old charts of prophecies and when it's going to happen and what it looks like. On the other hand, you have some people who, when you get into prophetic literature, like what we're studying now, tend to zone out and think, this is really boring compared to a lot of the other chapters in the Bible that are really relevant to my life. And I have a word of caution for both of you, okay? To those who tend to geek out like me on prophecy, okay? If you tend to like to look at all the prophecies and map it all together, I want to make sure you get something very clear. Do not worship the prophecies, Worship the one to whom the prophecies point, okay? It's very easy to to suddenly find your life, and in fact, there are entire theological camps built around what I think is an idolatry of the prophecies themselves. You, You start to like become this crazy person with these maps all over, and you're thinking, okay, it wrote, and all of a sudden your life is consumed by piecing together prophecy rather than having your life consumed by the person whom the prophecies point, Jesus 
okay? These are tools meant to further and deepen our worship of Jesus. Let them be served and serve you in that way. To the people on the other side of the camp who tend to zone out and are bummed out that I'm going to be going through prophecy right now and not something more important to your faith, I want you to hear what I just said. That is error. Every chapter of the Bible is important to your faith. And if this is not the thing that you get most excited about, I want to challenge you, maybe you should be more excited about it. God has recorded these supernatural prophetic words that were intended to guide the people of God through history so that they would have deeper worship of Christ. And what I want to do is, if you're not super jazzed by studying prophecy in the Old Testament, is I want to plant a seed in you that says, maybe, maybe these are here for your spiritual well-being. And there's a, there's a corner of your faith that will strengthen you if you permit God to open this up for you in your heart. Okay? So, with all of that, let's dig into Daniel chapter 7. It's a bit of a longer chapter. I'm going to read the whole thing from start to finish, and then we're going to piece it through. Remember, as I, go, as I said to begin, at the beginning, a lot of symbolic language. We're going to work with it, okay? Daniel 7. By the way, the public reading of long sections of Scripture is very important for our faith. Don't think this is a waste of time. This is a historic way we deepen our faith. Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first beast, the first, was like a lion, had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Are right, you confused yet? <laughs> we got a lot more to go. Behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things." As I looked, now if, if you look at your Bibles here, the next section should be indented a little bit. That's indicating to you that this is almost written in poet, poetic language. This section is, is written in a sense that there's a cadence and a rhythm and sometimes even a rhyming pattern to it, that the very way it's written is designed to stir the emotions and the affections, okay? As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. Ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, 
Remember, this is being written about 550 years before Christ, okay? I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which, he shall, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. Pause there. If you just read all of that and you feel anxious or confused in your heart, know that Daniel felt the same way. When he got the vision, he was confused. In another prophet, in a similar situation, says he was sick to his stomach for days after receiving the vision. This is not supposed to come easy to anybody, okay? Verse 16. I approached one of those, that's one of the angels standing nearby, I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he, the angel, told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. He said this, These four great beasts are four kings who will arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, 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 forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about that fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, fell the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the most high and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So he's asking, what was that deal with that fourth beast with the 10 horns on it? Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms and it will devour the whole earth, trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of that kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another shall arise after them. He will be different from the former ones, and will put down three kings. He will speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time, about two and a half years. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Okay, let's see what we can do with this. The chapter begins... And with this vision of four beasts. If you notice, there's this back and forth between the vision of the four beasts and then this beautiful poetic language of this fifth and final everlasting kingdom that goes to the Son of Man. It's an enduring kingdom. It's the Son of Man's kingdom. It's the kingdom which all peoples, tongues, tribes, and nations flock to. So it's the four beasts and their evilness compared and contrasted against this fifth kingdom that's given to the Son of Man who stands before the Ancient of Days. Now, backtrack with me. If you remember Daniel chapter 2, we had a very similar chapter there. Do you remember I put up an image of a big statue on the screen behind me that King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of four kingdoms? And if you recall, that statue had four sections that represented four kingdoms that would come in Daniel's future. 
So Daniel's looking out from 550 years before Jesus, and he's getting a vision of four kingdoms that will come in world history. And with our hindsight coming thousands of years later, we can look back on Daniel's vision and pinpoint with great detail exactly what those kingdoms were. Daniel wouldn't have known one of them was Rome. He didn't have that language yet. He just had the metaphor for what that kingdom would be. But we know with specificity what the kingdoms were. So let's go through. The four kingdoms mentioned in Daniel 7 align specifically with the four kingdoms in the vision mentioned in Daniel 2. So first, we read this. The first beast is a kingdom that came out of the sea, was a lion with eagle's wings. Okay? This is the same as the very top of the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This represents Babylon. The first beast is Babylon. And if you remember Nebuchadnezzar, this is a fitting image for Nebuchadnezzar because if you recall, he went a little crazy during his life. We've studied that in Daniel's life. He had seven years where literally it says that he grew his nails out like a bird's claws, right? So when it says a lion with eagle's wings, There's actually some reference to there specifically to Nebuchadnezzar. The first beast is Babylon. The second beast, a bear raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth. A bear raised up on one side. Okay, that language of kind of having one side greater than the other side. This is the Medo-Persian Empire. After Babylon, the next major superpower on the planet, history knows this, is the Medo-Persian Empire. We just studied that in Daniel 6. Those were the guys who threw Daniel in the lion's den. And the Medo-Persian Empire was really two empires, the Midians and the Persians. There was Cyrus of the Persians, Darius of the Medians, and the Persians were stronger. It was raised up on one side. Already, this should be fascinating to you. Already, if that was all we got from this chapter, that Daniel would be able to, without, without specifically knowing it, have a vision of the kingdoms that were to come. That's amazing. Biblical truth. The next one, a leopard with four wings and four heads. Now, a leopard is very fitting for the next kingdom that came on earth, which was Greece, the great Greek empire. And the greatest king of the Greek empire was Alexander the Great, who by the age of 30, with incredible speed, if you study the life of Alexander the Great, with incredible speed, like the speed of a leopard, took over the entire globe for the most part. Not everything, but one of the greatest empires in the history of the world. Like, he, he, he would go to nations, and people couldn't understand how quickly he was conquering nations. What a fitting image, a leopard with four wings and four heads. Daniel chapter 8, the next chapter we study, will have a lot more to say about those two empires. Fourth, is an unknown terrifying beast that was more ferocious and more dangerous and villainous to the surrounding nations. And we know from history, the nation that came after Greece, the superpower was Rome, the great Roman Empire, whom in the middle of the Roman Empire, during what we call in history, the Pax Romana, the the peace of Rome, which wasn't really a peaceful season, but we call it the Pax Romana, right in the midst of that, Jesus was born. The fourth empire that was more terrifying than all the other beasts is the Roman Empire. If you're wondering about was Rome really more terrifying than the other empires? Let me read to you from one of the great historians about the Roman Empire, Stephen Miller, commenting on this. He says this, commenting on this uh, fourth beast of Daniel 7, the incredible might and cruelty of Rome are aptly depicted by Daniel's fourth beast. 
Just as this monster was different from all the others, so the Roman Empire differed from those that had preceded it. Rome possessed a power and and longevity unlike anything the world had ever known. Nations were crushed under the iron boot of the Roman legions. Its power was virtually irresistible, and the extent of its influence surpassed the other three kingdoms. Okay. Now, look at Daniel 7, verses 1 to 8. We've just covered the four terrifying beasts and the superpowers that Daniel foresaw would be his future. They're our history. They were his future. Now, if you recall Daniel chapter 2, remember Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of the four kingdoms in a form of a statue, and then a fifth kingdom emerged right in the midst of that fourth kingdom. A fifth one emerged, and it was different than all the rest. Do you remember that? And it was, it was cut from a stone from no human hands, and it emerged and became the greatest of all kingdoms in the entire world. As we see, that's the same thing we see here. Right in the midst of that fourth terrifying kingdom, Rome, all of a sudden we see this language of the ancient of days and a new kingdom being established, which all people are coming to. But first, before we look at that kingdom, there's some additional details that are fascinating here. This fourth beast had 10 horns. Okay, now we're really getting into Bible prophecy. The fourth beast had 10 horns, and one of the horns was a particularly evil horn. I don't know if you can picture this, but there were 10 horns on this funky-looking beast, and one of them is talking and saying terrible things about God and the saints. Daniel 7, verse 24 to 25. As for the ten horns, this is the interpretation the angel gave about those horns. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. So, for our purposes, out of Rome would be ten particular kings, and another will arise after them. He will be different from the former ones, and will put down three kings. That's an interesting clue. He shall speak words against the Most High, will wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, time, and half a time. That's two and a half years. Time, time, half a time. Two and a half years. All right, two ways to interpret this passage, and I want to tell you about both of them and then how I interpret it, okay, with humility. One is that this is describing a futuristic kingdom that is to come, okay? A lot of people believe that these ten horns We see them actually spoken of again in the book of Revelation, which many people think is speaking about our future. Today, our future. These ten horns, and what they're thinking are, these ten horns represent some kind of allegiance or alliance of ten nations. And the little horn, the one that speaks blasphemies against God, is that famous character that many people have heard of in the Bible that we call the Antichrist. And what people think of is that at some point in the future, just before Jesus returns, there's going to be like a 10-nation confederation built, and then an antichrist will rule over that and persecute Christians all over the globe, okay? If you are at all into Bible prophecy, you have heard something like this. Today even, especially when we look at events happening with Russia, the Bible prophecy blogs are on fire today. 
I'm, I'm just telling you, if you want to see what Bible prophecy blog, the blogosphere looks like, just look up Bible prophecy in Russia, and you will see this passage being written about a ton. Because what people are doing is they're looking at world events and they're saying, ooh, okay, maybe the 10 kingdoms are the United Nations. And if this nation and this nation jumps off of the United Nations, then you've got 10 of them. And maybe Putin is the anti, this is what happens. And I want to say this to that. With humility, that might be the right way to interpret this. Honestly, it very well might be. I don't want to come here and say, no way. I don't know. I'm not the angel who gave the interpretation. I'm doing my best to study this. And I think there's actually a better interpretation. Okay? I think there's a better interpretation. I will say this, though. If it all plays out that way, which many churches would teach that, I would say this. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm looking forward to the day when Jesus returns, and Lord willing, it's sooner than later, because some days it looks really crazy out there, and it's going to be better when Jesus returns, I can tell you that, okay? That's called the futurist interpretation of this passage. It believes that some future kingdom is the ten horns, and then in the midst of the Antichrist, then the Messiah returns for the second time and establishes his kingdom forever, okay? Now, I lean into what's called the preterist interpretation, That means that these events of Daniel 7 maybe have a second futuristic like shadow version of them that might happen, but really it already happened in our past. Let me show you why. This is called the preterist interpretation. We hear about 10 horns. There were specifically 10 kings of the Roman Empire, 10 emperors between the start of the Roman Empire and the fall of the temple in Jerusalem. There were 10 of them, very specifically. The list of those 10 kings are Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, Gaius, Claudius, Nero, Galba, Otho, Vitellius, Vespasian. Those are the 10 kings that reigned from the moment Rome took over to that cataclysmic event in Jewish history, which was the final end to all the sacrifices that the Jewish people make and even wish they could make today. That happened in AD 70, 70 AD, about 40 years after Jesus's life, the temple was destroyed. Now, in terms of history, that was one of the bloodiest, most gruesome, terrifying massacres in world history, okay? There's nothing like it. Literally, Josephus, when he writes about this, the historian Josephus, when writing about the destruction of the temple in AD 70, said rivers of blood were flowing out of Jerusalem. It was the worst massacre in all human history, more than likely. Okay? That was the cataclysmic event. There were 10 kings. In the midst of them, one little one of them was a terrible emperor. His name was, I bet you know this actually, who was the Roman Empire who persecuted Christians terribly in that time period? Who, can, who knows it? Nero, Emperor Nero. He was brutal. He was brutal. Did you notice how it said three horns fell in order to make way for the little horn? In order for Nero, remember, Daniel 7 was written 550 years, right, before our day today. 500 years before Nero. In order for Nero to become emperor, he was not supposed to be the emperor. Three men, three kings were assassinated for Nero to become the emperor. So that list I just gave you, three of them, let me read the list again, where is it? The three before him, Tiberius, Gaius, and Claudius, were all assassinated in order for Nero to become the emperor. The one just before him was assassinated by Nero's mom in order that Nero could become the emperor. This is how brutal this man was. 
if that doesn't speak to you about the details of this prophecy, uh, when I read that, my eyes just say, God, you are amazing how you foretold the future. Nero was the one who persecuted Christians, and he set off a season of persecution unlike anything. So just so you understand Nero's uh, insanity towards Christians, at one point, Nero was reenacting the great Trojan War, okay? And, and what he did was he accidentally set fire to Rome. He burned Rome down. <laughs> and then when he was looking for someone to play, blame, because he was drunk at the time, and he burned Rome down, and everyone was upset, he blamed the Christians, and he kicked off this massacre of Christians in, in, in Rome. During Nero's reign as the evil man he was, he used to actually round up Christians and dress them in dead animal skins and then throw them into pits to be eaten by wild animals. This was his fun hobby he would do on the side. This is gruesome, I apologize for it, but you need to know the details of how bad this man was. What he would do is he would impale Christians at his party. So he'd have a party in a room like this. He would impale them on posts and light them on fire for the lighting of their parties. This is history. This is the record. This is what he did. So when we read of how evil he was, that this great beast that spoke blasphemies against God and, and that wore out the saints is the language, Yes, future persecutions came and still today happen all around the world. The man who set off the pattern for the persecutions of Christians in world history was Nero. That's who it was. These events of Nero's life, right after Nero, there was a series, 69 AD in Roman history is known as the year of four kings. The, 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 the emperors that came after Nero, the four remaining ones in that list of 10 kings, they had no power. They all died within one year. Right? It's the end. And then came the destruction of the temple. When the, the Jewish temple, where all the sacrifices were made, was destroyed. The cataclysmic event, which was the final death blow to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Okay? Now, for those reasons, I really believe that what we're reading is a preterist. It's a historical for us. Looking back, this is saying, don't miss when the Messiah would come. Jesus. Now, the point of Daniel 7 is not the four beasts. That's not, the, that's not what you celebrate out of Daniel chapter 7. What you celebrate out of Daniel 7 is one like the Son of Man who established a kingdom and took his seat upon the throne up in heaven and who all people, tongues, tribes, nations, and languages would be gathered into the kingdom that he established. And that kingdom would be established right in the midst of those 10 kings. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14 I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages would serve him. His dominion's an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now, what did Daniel see? He saw one who's divine and yet human. Didn't he, isn't that what he saw? He saw one like the Son of Man being presented to the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, and that Son of Man being given dominion over all kingdoms, and his kingdom would grow to be one that would just obliterate every other kingdom. It would far surpass every other kingdom in world history. That man is Jesus Christ. 
He came and he ministered right in the midst of those 10 kings. Around the year 32 AD, he was crucified as a common criminal. He was crucified for claiming to be the fulfiller of Daniel chapter 7. The Jews who crucified him knew exactly what they were doing because he was claiming to be the Messiah, the one whom the prophets pointed towards. And he was crucified from his own people. But then as he went into the grave, what was happening was that he was defeating sin, Satan, and death. And then when he resurrected from the dead, all the claims he ever made about who he was, that he was the son of man, that all authority would be given to him, that his kingdom would grow to extend over the whole earth, became legitimized at his resurrection. When he defeated death, something no simple human could do, only the God-man, Jesus Christ, would be capable of doing that. I need you to hear this. Many of you are coming into a room today, and you're coming in with baggage. You're coming in, and what you, what you need to hear today is not simply the amazingness of the prophecies that were fulfilled. I hope that convicts and brings a spirit of awe at the scriptures, and a curiosity to go home and study every word and be in awe at what God's done. But what you need to hear is that the one who is able to solve every brokenness in your life, the one who has authority over your life and knows everything about you and who sits on the throne right now and has not forgotten you, who sees you in your hardships, who sees you in your brokenness, who knows your ambitions and your longings and your unmet desires, who knows everything about you and has a plan for your life, that one is on the throne right now. And he's been sitting on that throne for 2,000 years. Amen? So hear this. Hear this. Find comfort in this passage. This is a comforting passage. It's a counseling passage to people who need one on the throne over your life. He's sitting. He's calling you to his kingdom. And when you place your faith in Jesus, when you truly allow him to be Lord over your life, look, he already is Lord over your life. Right? He's already Lord over every square inch of the universe. But when you permit and you say, Jesus, I turn from my sin and I, I now acknowledge your lordship over my life, you get grafted into this kingdom and you get given an entire new purpose in life. Entire new purpose. You're part of what God is doing. Did you see what he's doing in here? Verse 14, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages might serve him. That's the calling on your life, to find yourself wrapped up in the story of what God is doing. Now, just to give you some New Testament, you know, collateral to come alongside with this and support what I'm saying. The, the, the passage I read at the end of every service is the Great Commission. What did Jesus say there? He raises from the dead, and then he says, all authority has been given to me. Where? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. I think when Jesus said that, he's referencing Daniel 7. I think he's actually referencing this, where all authority and dominion was given to the Son of Man who took a seat on the throne. I think he literally is, he's about to ascend into heaven. He's about to fulfill this passage where he sits on his throne and inaugurates the fullness of the kingdom. And I think he's saying, just so you know, at this point, now all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth, fulfilling Daniel chapter 7. Matthew chapter 24 is called the Olivet Discourse. That's that amazing chapter where Jesus gives this sermon and he speaks about what many think are the end times. I think he, he was actually speaking in that passage about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. 
That's how it starts. He said, see this, sta- see this temple? Every stone is going to be torn down stone by stone. He's looking at the temple when he says it. And they say, when's it going to happen? He says, I tell you the truth. There are some alive today. They're going to be alive when it happens. It's going to happen within one generation. That was spoken by Jesus in 32 AD. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Okay? 38 years later, one generation in Jewish culture is 40 years. Jesus was spot on. The temple was destroyed exactly as he said it would be. And at that moment, it was the final ending. Jesus had inaugurated his church, inaugurated his kingdom, taken his throne. And there was this 40-year season where sacrifices were still being made in the temple as Jews were coming to faith in Jesus. And that was becoming an outdated thing. And then after 40 years... God allowed the temple to be fully destroyed. And no sacrifice has been made since. You can go to the ruins in Jerusalem today. They're there today. Okay. I think there's one more piece in here that's important. There's one verse, Daniel chapter 7, verse 12. He says, as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. If you read this passage at first glance, it can seem to be saying that when, the, when Jesus established his kingdom, it should just be peace and beauty from then on forever. Everything's perfect. He annihilates all evil and wicked kingdoms. And so people say, well, if it's preterist, why is there still evil kingdoms in the world today? Shouldn't it be over? Shouldn't all the kingdoms be destroyed and Jesus has established everything? I think this little verse is our clue. Their lives were prolonged, the beasts, their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I think in that little verse is a clue that says just what Jesus so often said. Jesus was famous for these parables like this one where he said, I I plant my seeds and the wheat will grow, but weeds will grow among it until that great harvest. And then I will separate the wheat from the chaff. I'll separate the wheat from the weeds. I think what this is saying is that evil kingdoms will be permitted to to come alongside the growing of the kingdom of of Jesus for a time, but they will have their end. And they will never be as pow- there will never be a superpower as strong as what we saw in the Roman Empire where they just dominated the whole world. They will grow in weakness over human history. And this is exactly what we've seen. Kingdoms have come and gone, but the kingdom that has survived and grown and, be- and it truly is taking over the whole world is the kingdom of Jesus that has been established by Christ ruling and reigning. Now, let me give us some application of this as I close this out today. You are invited into a larger story. When you read prophecies like this, I need you to understand, your life, we tend to have very myopic lives. We, we look at our life and we think of what's happening in our life, in our family, in our homes. And you need to realize that's true. Your life matters and all the unique details of your life are important. None of them are written off or unimportant in this place. Your life has meaning and value and Jesus values your life. But your life is also not a myopic little individual life detached from the rest of what God's doing. When you read this, you should have this this invitation that God is giving you to live your life as part of the great tapestry that God is writing of human history. And when you finally let that click in your mind, right? When, When you finally permit God to open your mind in such a way that you're no longer just focused on me, and those are important, yes, but suddenly you see your life connected to Daniel's. And you see your life in light of these four beasts and then the final kingdom. And then Jesus will return one day in the future and bring in the final heaven. And, the fi- and you see your life in light of the great line of human history. It changes the meaning of your life. 
we have to do two things. We have to live with a historic perspective of what God's already done and an eternal perspective of what he's yet to do. Historically, as Christians, we should know what God's, we stand on the shoulders of giants, of men and women who have paved way for you and I to worship in this room today. You know, it, here's a bit of a silly picture for you, but if we forget our history and think this, we're just here and we don't stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us, it's a bit like, take your favorite movie, okay? Imagine, I'm just gonna pick Lord of the Rings, okay? If you've seen Lord of the Rings, if you haven't, bear with me. It's a bit like Frodo getting to Mount Doom at the end of the movie, and he's got the ring in his hand, and, and he's gotta, you know, destroy this ring, and he's standing there, and he has no clue what he's doing, why he's standing there with the ring in his hand. He has no idea about all the people that died to get him there. He has no idea about the journey that actually all the people have been on to get that ring and to protect that ring and to help him get to the point. He's just standing there with a ring, and he's like, well, what should I do with this ring? I have no, no memory of history. That would be insane. Frodo needs his memory. And for us, it's the same thing. If you don't realize all the people that have given their life to build a kingdom for you to be here and to continue the legacy, you're kind of like Frodo on Mount Doom standing there with your ring going, oh, look at this thing. I wonder what I'm supposed to do. Look at that. I got a Bible. That's kind of cool. I wonder what I should do with this. You're part of a rich legacy of Christians given a commission that has been moving for thousands of years. Connect yourself into that story. But you also have to live with an eternal perspective. The story's not over yet. And you are part of it. You are building the kingdom. When we go out and we serve with Bread of Life ministry, that's not, a, that's not like play church. You are continuing the outgrowth and the building of the kingdom of God that was established by Jesus Christ. Find your story in what God's doing because as you build the kingdom, you're building towards that day when Christ returns and when he returns in person, he will take a throne in physical form on this earth and will reign for all eternity and that will be the day when there are no more rival kingdoms. It's over when he returns. They're done. There's no more rivals. Sin and Satan and every rival kingdom is done away with once and for all and the saints will live on this earth in perfect peace with their king that day is coming whether it's before we go to sleep tonight or in another thousand years i don't know but the day is coming and i suspect the days are growing short so find your place in that live in light of eternity remembering where you've come from and give honor to the passage that we studied today i think amen pray with me father thank you so much for passages like these that remind us of who we are as a people of God. God, I pray for those in this room today that you would give a great awakening in their hearts to stir us up to live in light of reality. Reality is Jesus is ruling and reigning, whatever we think about it. Whether we deny him today or not, whether we believe in him or not, that has no bearing on the reality, Jesus, that you are sitting on your throne. And together as a family, we worship you. Lord, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Yours is the kingdom that endures, the dominion that reigns forever. Lord, I pray that you would bring conviction over this church to serve you faithfully the way you've called us to, to step into brokenness around us, to step into rival kingdoms and proclaim the name of Jesus and say your, see your kingdom get built. God, thank you for this precious church family. Thanks for the reality of being able to gather safely in a room like this on a Sunday morning. We don't take that lightly. We love you, Lord. We say this all in Jesus' holy name. Amen.